You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. This morning, we wanted to talk about the word Shaul, the name of the first king of Israel. Could you help us understand more deeply, Father, how this word Shaul functions in the Old Testament? Well, it's perhaps the most powerful example of the functionality of words, not only nouns in the personal sense and so on, because that's not the way the original hearer perceives the matter. And in this case, it is very important to realize that it is connected to the story of kingship. The first mention of Saul, as we have it in English, is in 1 Samuel 9, which is one chapter after the showdown between God on the one hand through Samuel and the people concerning kingship. They wanted a king to be like the other nations, and that is not the plan in Scripture. The only king of Israel is the Lord himself, the scriptural God. Now, this to the original ear is immediately perceived because Shaul in Hebrew is the passive participle of Sha'al, which means to ask. And thus Shaul means the asked for, the one who is asked for. And it fits perfectly the story of the beginning of kingship. Obviously, it was asked for by the people, not by God. But God gave in in order to show them their mistake. As I repeatedly say, God allows something is not to be equated with God agrees with something. We have this tendency usually. Now, he was the first king. And then in the story, as we shall see slowly on, God is displeased with him. And then we have the preparation for David, the following king. Now, Shaul is presented very positively immediately at the beginning. He is the son of Kish in 1 Samuel 9, and his father has asses, she-asses, donkeys, which are like horses, and thus this is reflective of richness and power, compared, obviously, to David, whose father, and he himself, David, was a shepherd of sheep. That's the difference between the two. So Shaul is impressive also because in no other translation it functions in the same way. It is transliterated Saul in Greek and then Saul with a U, which gives us Saul in English, Saul in Latin. And even interestingly in Arabic, Although the letters are the same as in Hebrew, but the vocalization is different to the extent that the name becomes Shaul, obviously, in Arabic to ask is Sa'ala, with a sin instead of Sheen, and thus even then it wouldn't have worked to say Shaul, I mean, it doesn't mean anything. So unless one hears it in Hebrew, 
it is just another name and thus non-functional. <laughs> now, in chapter 9, he is presented as the son of a Benjaminite. It sounds like this. Ben-ish, a son of a man. Yumini and Ben-Yamin is Benjamin. There is Ben-ish Yumini. There is a play. He is a son of a man of the right hand, and this is precisely what Benjamin means, the son of the right hand, and thus the honored one, and thus the king, as we hear in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. Once you hear that he is a Benjaminite, then we realize that he is a member of the warrior tribe, as we hear in the book of Judges. So it's very impressive. It's a small tribe, but it's very powerful, the warrior tribe. And he is, at the end of 9-1, Gibor Hail. Gibor by itself means the mighty one, as we heard about Nimrod. But Hail in Hebrew and in Arabic means the energy, the zest. And when you combine these two words, you are underscoring that he was a top Gibor, a very powerful person. But then in verse 2, very interestingly, immediately after Shaul, we have Bahur Watob. Tob is good, handsome. Bahur means young man, but only secondarily, because Bahur is the passive participle of Bahar, which is to choose. And thus, he is a chosen, a choice person. Notice the play. I know here it is a choice person, a young man, handsome, and so on. But Bahur also means the chosen, and thus the elect by God all over Scripture. So the text begins by showing you or presenting you with a person who was chosen by the people and also was the elect of God. This is the impression that the text leaves you with. But then later in the story, beginning with chapter 10, we have a parallel line, a parallel venue if you like, which is the venue of the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord. Both are used profusely in the story of Saul, the Spirit of the Lord, which is the mighty wind, the power of God, which is the expression of the divine. And this Spirit of the Lord is the reality without which Saul would not have been king. But suddenly in the story of Saul, and this is what I want to stress, <laughs> we shall be speaking for the rest of the podcast about the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God, not so much Saul, that controls the story of Saul in the Bible. And there is an interplay between the approving spirit of God and the this approving spirit of God, actually, profusely, it is referred to as Ra'a, evil, bad spirit. So let me begin by reading a few of these passages. In 1 Samuel 11:6, 6, 
And the Spirit of God came mightily upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was kindled. In 1315, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. You see how suddenly David is introduced because the Spirit of God, God, was displeased with Saul. In 1010, I missed that earlier, sorry. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a band of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came mightily upon him, which is Saul, and he prophesied among them. But suddenly, David is introduced, and Saul becomes envious of him, and the text says, I'm going back to 1 Samuel 16:13, when the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now the Spirit of the Lord, immediately following verse, departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So suddenly we have introduced an evil spirit from the Lord. The text is very interesting in the original, which is rendered correctly here in English. An evil spirit from the Lord. But slowly on, we're going to hear the phrase, the evil spirit from the Lord. And here KJV followed by RSV continues to say an evil spirit from the Lord. And that is a little bit treacherous because the translator wants to impose on you that this is what you should hear. But that's not what you hear in the original. We have the spirit of God that is bad immediately. We have in 14, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. That reflects the original Hebrew. And Saul's servants said to him, behold now an evil spirit from God. But in Hebrew, we have the spirit of God that is evil. And we should not be scandalized because what it means is that that spirit is controlled by God because it is the Spirit of God, and it decides to act according to the will of God. Remember in the law, God blesses and God curses. And here also, the same Spirit of God or of the Lord is the channel always of God, but in view of what God wants to do, and God realizes either the good or the evil. And this is what we have from now on in 1 Samuel 16, 16. It is Ruach Elohim Ra'al, the evil spirit of God. And in chapter 16, 23, someone recommends that whenever Saul is uneasy under the influence of this evil spirit from the Lord, he should ask David to play the lyre. And whenever David took the lyre and played it with his hand. Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Notice, it is the evil spirit. But this comes at the end of a verse which begins with a reference to the spirit of God. And whenever the spirit of God was unto Saul, and here again, the original has just spirit of God. But the English add evil to make it easy on the hearer. And then it is when David plays the harp, 
so Saul was refreshed, and let's hear the Hebrew, rawah le Shaul. We use this expression also in Arabic. You breathe out, you relax. So again, I'm trying to impress upon all of you that the original has a much more powerful interplay. And it is after that that we hear, went away the evil spirit. Notice, Shaul breathes rawah under the influence of the playing of David on the lyre. And that is how the same Spirit of God works positively or negatively. Later, another example, we read in 1 Samuel 18.10, And on the morrow an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. But here again in the Hebrew, we don't have an evil spirit from God. It is Ruach Elohim Raha, an evil spirit of God. And the same expression with Yahweh this time, the Lord, is found in 119.9. It's Ruach Yahweh Raha, the spirit of the Lord, evil, the evil spirit of the Lord. In Hebrew, the adjective comes at the end after the noun. We don't say the evil spirit in Hebrew, it's the spirit is the evil one, the spirit, the evil one. And thus, at the end, one realizes that it is the will of God that is controlling this new king, the Benjaminite, the first king of Israel. And it is not the will of the people and the events on the ground that controls the story. It is the spirit of God that controls negatively in the case of Saul kingship. And that explains the whole experience of Saul, as we have noticed, right from the beginning was aborted, or at least unto abortion. This way, when the hearer meets David, whose name is beloved, and who was a shepherd of flock, and thus he was the king, really willed by God and selected by God, but we know the rest of the story of David. I don't want to go into it. I want to concentrate on Saul and on the move from Saul to David. When the hearer gets to hear about David, the beloved shepherd, it always remains in their minds that David was not the first king. That is very important. To remember. He was, if you like, a second try on the part of God. And that, as we shall see, will not succeed. That's why the prophets will be speaking about a new David. But that's an issue regarding David. Let's go back to Saul. So Saul is not, we cannot use he was bound for failure because the hearer would have guessed that. There is no way that the hearer would have guessed that. The hearer, through listening to the text, notice slowly on that the failure of Saul was willed by God, practically, directly, 
Remember, in the Bible, ultimately, God is the sole agent. He controls everything. Still, what is impressive in the story of Saul, that this whole matter is perceived fully only in the original, that there is this play on the root Shaul, on the root Bahur, on the root Ruach. Notice the verb Werawah le Shaul, and it was well, a good breath to Saul, like when you sigh, a good sigh of relief. All this cannot be heard except in the original, and that, according to me, and I tried to show it in a few podcasts, and whenever we get back also to other names, we will notice the same thing, is really impressive. And I believe the teachers, as in Islam, you know, they must know Arabic, the language of the Quran, and the teachers, the leaders, must know Hebrew or at least read commentaries explaining the Hebrew and then try to find it in the text so that when they are explaining to their hearers, you know, the teachers have a responsibility Remember Jesus in Matthew 23, do as they say, don't do as they do, forget about what they do. The teaching, the correct teaching judges you. That's why Jesus in the New Testament is mainly the teacher. Now let me make a quick jump into the New Testament and you will see how this is functional in the story of the other Saul, which is our Paul. We have a full parallelism according to me and i have said this in all my classes and in my books right from the beginning when saul the benjaminite remember how saul is proud of himself that he is from the tribe of benjamin named after the most majestic person of that tribe saul right when he was chosen remember in the book of acts select instrument the select vase Skevos, the vase which is eklekton, eklogi, the choice of God. Soon enough, his name is changed to Paul, which in Latin means the little one. Try to preach in Latin, it sounds funny, because we're used to say the great Paul, the great Paul, or Pavlos Omegas, even in Greek. It sounds great, beautiful, but <laughs> it's a slap in the face because in Latin is the great little one. But it's not that there was a little one that was magnified as we would like to perceive it. That's how we speak about Paul, that he was against God and so on, and God chose him and made him great. No, if you begin with Saul, he was great. God belittled him. In Romans 11, we have this nice text where Paul presents himself as a Benjaminite from the sperm of Abraham, an Israelite, not a Jew, an Israelite here. And yet he says that he didn't fall in the trap in which the mighty Elijah fell. He thought that he was the only one on the side of God. And God belittles Elijah by showing him so many thousands of knees. Unknown to him, Elijah, but known to God, they are still with God. And Paul does not fall in this trap, he says in Romans chapter 11. So this 
name, I hate to say personality, this name, Shaul, is so important that it carries into the New Testament, in other words, the authors of the New Testament. Because you remember in my book, I showed that everything is made up, you could tell from the use of words, was carried into the New Testament. And Saul, Paul, is presented as secondary, if you like, the preparer of the way for Jesus, which is again in the Hebrew Joshua. I discuss this in detail in the New Testament, so I don't want to venture, if you like, into this new line of discussion. It could be the topic of another podcast. But I believe I would be remiss in the sense that I would not have honored the topic Saul in the Old Testament if I would not have mentioned how it carries into the New Testament. Saul is followed by David, and in the New Testament, Saul, Paul, is the preparer for the new David, which is Jesus Christ. Again, let me wrap up. This is another example where the original is really of the essence to understand to understand what the text is saying not what rsv is saying or jerusalem bible or the arabic is saying but the text is saying what scripture is saying it's offhandedly mentioned how saul goes home to gibeah and how samuel had to find him in gibeah and keeps mentioning gibeah and gibeah and we know of Gibeah as this infamous place in Judges where there was the rape and murder of the Levite's concubine. What is the link between Saul's Gibeahite origins and Saul's character? Well, right there, you said it in Hebrew, this is what it means. It's a mound, it's a heap, something high, it's a hill. This is how you choose, I mean, normally to build a city in order to build a city that is fortified. I mean, even before you put the fortifications, it's very hard to go up hill to fight people, then downhill. This is the opposite of the valley, opposite of the Bikah. And that brings us back to what we said previously about the valley, the plain, and the tower. And so. so Gibah is a mound. The proof that it is, again, a noun that has a meaning and thus a common noun you remember how in the old commentaries people were lost. Why are there so many gibas? <laughs> it's because there are so many gibas, which means that the intention, as you yourself pointed, is reference to the power that is destroyed by God because a sin was committed there. And this is where in Samuel we have the altercation between Samuel and Saul, where Saul is criticized by Samuel. So it functions in the same way as earlier Bahur, young, powerful man chosen, and Tob, which is good and handsome. Scripture is systematically and I detail that in my discussion of Genesis eleven against what is powerful, humanly beautiful, or appealing, or sought after, let's go for Shaul. This is how we go. You don't dress ugly, you dress beautiful. That's what we do. A powerful young man, Pahur Wotob, one who is the son of the right hand, 
everything that is positive, and let me go back to the importance of the Spirit of God and Spirit of the Lord, immediately the author perturbs this whole mental basis of every human being by referring once at the beginning as an evil spirit from the Lord, and then he moves to say the evil spirit of the Lord, evil spirit of God. That is more than perturbing, shattering. This is, according to me, the culmination of the culmination, because to say that a gibah, a mound, has been cursed, you still accept that. A king that has been cursed, you still accept that, and so on. But to speak about the spirit of God that will raise the dry bones in Ezekiel is evil. It is the same word that is used early on in Genesis to speak about the good and the evil. Technically, the discussion of Saul, as you have noticed, is the discussion of the text in which we encounter Saul. You don't discuss Saul. That's my attack against what I perceive as individualizing and historicizing, as though you can Google Saul and they give you an idea about what one said. No, you have a text. Saul is within the story. The same, again, applies to Saul Paul in the New Testament. One has to train oneself, actually. It would be nice to write a booklet, a pamphlet like this, or you to discuss it in the Ephesus school. Just, I mean, you know Hebrew very well. Just make a small series on the side, doesn't matter, just explaining words. And then to make it easy, give examples how it functions like you hear it, a very classic one, let me mention it because everybody knows it because it's so clear in the text that Isaac is not Isaac, is Yitzhak, he laughs. And immediately the hearer perceives that Isaac is a slap in the face of Abram and Sarai that laughed at God when he told them that I am going to send you a son. <laughs> Without Abram, just through the womb of Sarah, it is unbelievable. Can you imagine you're forced to name your son with a name that always reminds you that laughs best who laughs last, which is God. God is laughing at you through the entire scriptural story, as we hear in Psalm 2. He laughs down at all of us. We're pure jokes, you know, when it comes to the real thing, which is exclusively God in scripture. He is spirit, everything else, including the chariots of the Egyptians, are flesh and thus dust to dust. The difficulty, and this is the power of the word Shaul and its function, the difficulty is that the human being looks and they see how things work in the world and they can't but resist scripture. I'll give you an example. You know, the king is what you asked for, and you get what you asked for. If you want human power, there's an end result. But then you look at the world, and everybody knows a revolution without a leader will fail. A country without a king or an army will be overrun by another country. And just on that very basic level, the impossibility of the biblical proposition, it's just a bitter pill for people. It's so hard to swallow. But the wisdom of Scripture does its work when you don't dismiss scripture because of that tension or because of what appears to be irrational. 
and you just submit to it. If you think you agree with scripture, you're not reading scripture. You can't agree with it because you might say that you hate power and power corrupts the way people use platitudes in our culture. But at the end of the day, you can't function without power. And deep down inside, you're just like everybody else. You're impressed with all things that glorify humanity. Well, let's go for the churches. Let's begin with ourselves. The one who preaches humility does it from the ambo. That person has to be somewhere above for the people to listen. So you speak from a position of power. But in the Bible, it is the shepherd who is sitting surrounded by the cherubim. How many church domes, especially in our Orthodox tradition, you see a shepherd, you see a pantocrator, the one who holds everything, which is a Roman emperor. You have the icon of Jesus as a teacher on the Episcopal chair, and he looks like a bishop. Even the Orthodox make Jesus the pantocrator blessing the way an Orthodox priest blesses. So your reference is always your perception of things. But the Bible from the beginning disrupts by having the four mighty rivers of the Levant coming from one river. I mean, you could say that this applies because the sources of both the Tigris and the Euphrates are in Turkey and the Ararat mountains. But how about the other two, which are not named? And yet all these four come from a little river which is in a garden that is planted by God. I mean, it's so ridiculous that God is presented as someone who plants a garden. Then you move to the famous text of the flood, followed by Genesis 11, where the people wanted to be one and build a tower and highs. And it is systematic because, as you mentioned, Father Mark, it is unnatural against the nature something which is by definition against the nature has to be repeated every day because nature repeats itself every day we are children of nature of habit that's how we do things and we define our vocabulary accordingly and the text begins with that notice how Shaul is the son of the right hand. He is elect, select, and good, handsome, and so on. Higher, as we say, head and shoulders above all the others, and so on. You cannot do it otherwise, but precisely because you cannot do it otherwise, you have very soon to deconstruct it. And I think the text is deconstructing the whole matter to the extreme, I think it is the most extreme text where systematically you have a play between the good spirit of God or spirit of the Lord and the bad spirit of God, spirit of the Lord. How could that be? Well, let's re-listen to the story. That's my approach to scripture. When someone asks you, you have to say, let's re-listen to the story. But this is not what classical theology across the board did. And when I say across the board, not only in Christian tradition, also in Jewish and Muslim tradition, they started philosophizing. Let me explain to you, I love when people say, let me explain to you what scripture is saying. My dear friend, stop explaining to the people what scripture is saying. Just explain to them the meaning of the original words and then let him hear it again. You should not explain. Scripture does not need a Hermes 
The God of Scripture is not like the other gods. I discussed this in my book that needs someone to translate their thoughts to the people. This is where the word hermenia, hermeneutics, come from. You have even seminars on the topic of hermeneutics, the hermeneutical key, how the orthodox hermeneutics, and so on. It gets really sickening. Luckily, I went to Palestine, Israel, after I studied Ezekiel. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to figure out these three letters Mem, M, Sheen, Sheen, and Kaf, K, Meshok. <laughs> it's because I had done my studies on Meshik and Meshok, which is stretch to pull out something and so on. And guess where you find these three letters? On the handles of the doors, which means pull. That's what it means. <laughs> now, obviously, an Israeli would have made fun of me. What do you mean? You didn't know that. And then the other thing you keep hearing, uh, toda. It is that word that is used in the Psalms about thanksgiving and so on. At the end of each announcement, as we say in English, thank you, you hear toda. I mean, the word means what it means. Just two simple examples. <laughs> That's what it means. Thank you very much, Father Paul. Thank you. Thank you very much. God bless you both. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.